Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to today's History Hack. Uh, the topic, as you can see, is science so it would have just been rude not to invite Kit. Hello, Kit. Hello, how's it going? Dr. Kit of Falmouth University, <laughs> best-selling cool. author of History Science Bro Stuff. Yeah, I'm really pleased about that. I was going to say, when, when you look on Amazon and you've got like number one against your name, that gives you a little funny feeling inside. Boom. But we're Boom. not here to talk about me. No. We are joined today by Amanda J. Thomas, who is an author, linguist and historian with a particular interest in social and medical history. She's joined us once before to talk about all the nonconformism in revolution. Is that right? Sorry, nonconformist revolution, is that? Yeah, the it's the, the nonconformist revolution. Or the nonconformist revolution. Okay. Sorry. Should we start again? Yeah. yeah and, uh... <laughs> it's actually, it's about the influence of nonconformism on revolutionary thought. Oh, okay. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you very much. Third time lucky. Here we go. <laughs> We're joined today by Amanda J. Thomas. She is an author, historian and linguist with a particular interest in social and medical history. She's joined us once before to talk about nonconformist thought and its influences on revolution. But today she's back to talk about a different subject. Uh, her previous book was Lambeth Cholera Outbreak of 1848 to 1849. And this time she's looking at cholera more holistically with cholera, the Victorian plague. Fabulous. Thanks so much, Kit. It's an absolute thrill to be here again. Um, we, uh, we covered some very interesting things last time and I'm hoping it's going to be even more amazing this time. And it's lovely to meet you as well. Really nice to meet you. And I suppose we probably should start at the beginning for those of us who, who aren't sort of a medical background. Uh, people have probably heard of cholera, but they will have never seen it in their lifetime. It really doesn't exist in the UK anymore. Uh, so what is cholera and how do you catch it? Well, first of all, you're not correct to say it doesn't exist in the UK anymore because it does. But it exists in a different form because cholera is an organism which lives all over the world. It's part of the natural environment, but it's not always pathogenic. So something special has to happen to it. These little rod-shaped bacteria with tails that swim in the natural environment, mainly in coastal areas, in a brackish environment. Um, yeah, it's always been with us. And dys dysenteric disease, tummy upsets are something that have always been with us. But cholera first erupted as a pandemic, as the first pandemic in 1817. And it's a really, really nasty disease. You don't want to catch it. So we've mentioned the stomach upsets, but obviously there's a lot of bowel movements involved and, and obviously people died. So what does cholera do to you and is it always fatal? 
No, it's not always fatal. And it depends on very, very many things. The thing about cholera is that um, it has a very interesting cell structure. And it also, in its natural environment in the water, it lives with little animals, a bit like sort of tiny, tiny shrimps called copepods. And um, they think this is really, really new science, but they think that it's that the potency, the ability for cholera to be able to do something called horizontal gene transfer depends on, firstly, it's interesting cell structure. And secondly, the copepods that it lives with in the natural environment. When it becomes pathogenic, which is through this process of horizontal genetic transfer, where the cholera bacterium um, is able to acquire um, genetic material from other things living in its environment, either other um, bacteria which have died in the natural environment, it sucks its DNA out, or through bacteriophages, whereby it takes on a viral component. And it's this special gene, this pathogenic gene, that it is able to acquire, which then allows it to go through a um, well, a survival process, if you like, when its environment has been disrupted. And it's this disruption of the environment which has caused so many problems for humans. So what happens when we ingest it? Well, we either ingest it through drinking water, which has these pathogenic um, microorganisms, cholera, vibrios in it, um, or we might eat some food that's got cholera on it, or we might not wash our hands before eating. And so you might suck your finger and it's on the end of your finger. But the most common ways of ingesting it are through um, drinking water or by eating food and shellfish, oysters, mussels, shrimps, crabs, things which live in the water, in estuaries, and which have an association with natural cholera organisms. What happens once you ingest the cholera is that you probably at first don't know that there's anything wrong. But one of the things that they used to say about cholera um, in the Victorian period and through the series of epidemics which happened in the 19th century was that you'd be fine at breakfast but dead by supper time and cholera does its work really serious epidemic pathogenic cholera does its work very very fast and what happens is it gets into your gut the cholera actually talk to each other called something called quorum sensing where they're picking up chemicals from each other where they understand that they are at this at a, at a quorum at a at the right level to then start giving off um a toxin which effectively burrows into your intestines and you as a, as a human being you then start to dehydrate very very rapidly and it's the process of dehydration which then becomes very painful and you suddenly realize oh my god there is something seriously wrong and certainly in the victorian era era they would have known that they had cholera so you start vomiting violently you have violent diarrhea but to the point you know, where you have a tummy upset and you think, oh, I can't do it anymore. <laughs> there can't be anything left inside of me. And what happens with cholera is that um, the diarrhea actually becomes not what you have last eaten, but the particles of your intestines themselves. And so one of the characteristics of cholera and how they were able to diagnose it was because the um, excretia looks like rice water. So it's clear fluid, which is your which is your bodily fluids with white particles of your intestinal lining in it. You dehydrate so rapidly. It's literally pushing, pumping your bodily fluids out of your body. You dehydrate so rapidly that your blood actually thickens. And one of, again, the characteristic appearance of cholera victims is you look very sucked in and wizened and your skin turns blue because your blood 
is dehydrated. And a great many cholera victims die from a cardiac arrest because the heart can't physically pump the blood around your body. So death is swift and death is painful and death is very frightening, especially in um, a world where disease is not really understood and where this is certainly for the UK, a very new disease in its violence and potency yes I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly it's not nice from, from a medical standpoint it's fascinating because most um, bacterium that exists in the body most viruses things like that they have no interest in killing the host that is no. almost counterintuitive to what it does but cholera seems to kind of almost actively want to get rid of you um, I'm not sure that that's entirely the case. And you're absolutely right, because it is counterintuitive, because, of course, when you release your bodily fluids, it's full of cholera vibrios. And so it's a it's a way of it proliferating itself. And it's thought that, in fact, this is a very similar process to what it does when it lives in the natural environment on the egg sacs of copepods, that the toxin that it releases, obviously, in that case, it's not pathogenic in the same way as it is in humans. Um, it might not even be the same pathogen that is enabling it to do this. In other words, the same gene. Um, but it, um, it um, releases a chemical which enables the copepod to release um, eggs into the environment. And so, again, it proliferates in a very, very similar way. The other thing as well that we're starting to realise, and this is with some of the work that's been going on in Bangladesh, where cholera is, is still a really big problem, particularly in monsoon, well, in monsoon season, because increased rainfall is one of the things that triggers the pathogenesis um, of, the, of the cholera bacterium, um, but is looking at the DNA of the gut of people who have cholera and who might have died of cholera as well. And it does look as if they're, once cholera is in the gut, and, it, and they think this might be happening in, um, um, in sewage um, as well, um, but again, you know, this is quite new stuff, is that when it gets into your gut, it then enters into a relationship with other bacteria that are there. And one of the things that they've discovered in Bangladesh is that people who look as if they're dying of cholera, and by all intents and purposes have cholera, then it transpires that they, they can't find any DNA, any cholera DNA in their, in their gut. So Basically, in a nutshell, what's going on is the relationship, the horizontal gene transfer between different pathogens, mainly in this case, other vibrios like salmonella, for example. They are exchanging information between each other in order for a proliferation of themselves to go on to another place, if you like. Mm -hmm. So whether they're coming from copepods in their estuarine environment or from the human gut to them it's all the same and the relationship between them is the same so it's wrong to see cholera in isolation the vibrio cholera in isolation because it is living as part of um, a community i suppose of other bacteria and of other organisms, it's just unfortunate that it finds itself in the human gut. And so it tries to behave in the human gut as it would in its natural environment. And of course, that's really bad news for us. There were several flare ups, as in full epidemics of cholera during the Victorian period. How long did they generally last? They generally lasted, Alex, about a year to 18 months and incorporated a long, hot summer. So um, you're looking at the first one um, in um, 1831 to 1832, starts off in, with the Indian summer. Then the next one is 1848 to 49, then 1853 to 54, and then finally 1866, where measures had started to be put in place to contain the outbreaks in all the various different places. Um, but yeah, generally... 18 months, perhaps two years. What's interesting as well is between those epidemic outbreaks, because that's what they are, you still found that people were suffering from severe dysentery, um, gastric problems, which were probably being caused by cholera, but not the same pathogenic cholera that was rising up in those 
epidemic years, excuse me. And the reason for those epidemic flare-ups are because of the climate. In addition to what was being brought from the outside, from other places where cholera had already erupted. It's probably worth diving into that because we've spoken about the fact that we're changing the environment. Obviously, the 19th century, we have this massive industrialization. So what kind of is the cause of the, of, of the spread of cholera? Is it this, this increased trade and things moving around? Or is it the fact that we are now moving into cities, we are industrializing and the environment has changed? Is that why cities became the focal point? Yeah, it's quite it's quite interesting because I was thinking about this this morning. I thought, well, you know, why didn't we have epidemic cholera in this country before 1831? Why why didn't if it's in the natural environment, why hadn't it? Surely we had Indian summers before, but actually it's a it's a it's a similar um, string of events to what has happened more recently in 2010 in Haiti, for example. Um, and and it's it's kind of um, it's a perfect storm of events. And you're absolutely right by saying that industrialization was a trigger for epidemic cholera, certainly mostly in coastal areas, in ports and in cities because of high density population, because of a weakened population, particularly post Napoleonic Wars. Um, there are poor harvest years, Irish famine, weakened population, moving to places where they can make more money, protect their families. Um, so you have a movement of people and, and also across the globe as well with trade, as you correctly say, boats moving faster across across the oceans. And you have a um, an accumulation of people of high density living um, in coastal, in ports and in cities, which is necessarily going to aid cholera in its proliferation. But that's not what caused it in the first place. And, and it looks as if what triggered epidemic cholera in the Victorian period was probably the climate change that occurred with perhaps what was going on in India, because we think that that first pandemic started um, in Jessore and in the Bay of Bengal. But the Bay, Bay of Bengal has been wrongly named as the home of cholera. It's not because, as I said right at the beginning, cholera is everywhere. But something special happened in India in these early years of the Industrial Revolution. And it's to do with empire, with the British colonising India um, and digging irrigation channels in order to um, aid um, the production of, of crops. We think this might be a factor. I have to say it's not definite, but it makes sense understanding now the science. But the biggest factor of, of all, and this is what you know, the sort of the um, the thing that unlocks this sequence of events is the eruption of Mount Tambora in Indonesia in 1815. The, um, the year with no summer, 1816, followed. It was one of these super colossal um, volcanic eruptions which caused climate change. And I was looking at this again in the last few days in anticipation of, of, um, of doing this podcast. And I thought, yeah, but, you know, volcanic eruptions have happened before. Why? Why has this not happened before? Why? Why did this have such a colossal effect? And everywhere that I looked, they said, oh, well, volcanic eruptions cause um, sea surface cooling not warming and then again very recently and it's because of this explosion of research that's happened with covid um people have started to look at how um volcanic eruptions and depending on where the volcanic eruption happens as well how it changes the el nino effect particularly the southern oscillation and what it looks like has happened in 1817 with um the Mount Tambora eruption was that the sea temperature around the Indian Ocean and around the Bay of Bengal changed quite considerably and out of character. It's when things happen out of character, which then um, an organism like cholera thinks, hey, I've got an opportunity now. I mean, as you know, Kit, 
you know, this is what bacteria and viruses do. They look for opportunities. And this is what COVID has done as well. Hey, I've got an opportunity here to expand where I am. And the, the, the one thing about sea surface temperature increasing and increased rainfall and increased sea surface type is it encourages horizontal genetic transfer. And it is this transferal of genetic material which is so dangerous for us and with um, pathogens and with um, epidemic disease. Um, and so where, where cholera was concerned, at the, it wasn't even at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution because the Industrial Re Revolution is already well underway in Britain. Um, you know, we're looking at the beginning of the 19th century, but it's this um, climate effect in the Bay of Bengal coupled with the opportunity for pathogenic cholera to travel elsewhere in ships, in people's tummies, because ship journeys are becoming shorter and shorter, and then arriving in Britain, where, of course, sea surface temperatures have also been affected by the volcanic eruption. Rainfall has also been affected by the volcanic eruption. So, you know, you have to see it in that respect. But then, well, if we if we weren't all living in densely populated cities and ports, well, maybe that climate change might not have made a difference. But because we were all crammed into cities with poor sanitation, it meant that what was going on, for example, in the River Thames, suddenly became a problem for the people living in London and by the Thames. If they hadn't have been living there and drinking water from the Thames, wouldn't have made a difference. So that, you know, it's quite likely this that this might have happened before. But if you're in a situation where the people who are living there are now drinking this genetically changed organism in the in their drinking water, then boom then you've got epidemic disease. So it really is a, a combination of factors. And it's this combination of factors which is so important for us to understand today because we're still living in densely populated cities and we're still in a situation where there might be flooding or there might be some terrible you know, disaster whereby our infrastructure, I mean, events in Ukraine has shown us that, you know, our world is not as stable as we thought. And we could still be in a situation where our infrastructure breaks down and we're once more very much vulnerable to, um, to pathogens which are out there just waiting for this sort of change to happen. To that end, is trade in part then to blame for cholera? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, because this um, this pathogenic strain which had developed in in India was then brought. Because who are we trading with through the, through the empire? India is one of the places we're trading with, and there are um, there are ships which are going backwards and forwards, and then also, of course, the the, the opening of the Suez Canal, um, <laughs> we're able to get goods into the UK from these warmer places much, much faster. And the waste which is being accumulated on board ship is often held in their bilges. It's also, and this is a really, really scary thing, and Kit, you'll understand this about viable and not non-viable bacteria, is that one of the things that cholera is able to do, and this is to do with its cell structure that I talked about right at the beginning, is it's able to go to sleep. So say, for example, you're carrying material for dressmaking, for tailoring on your ship and somebody with cholera has vomited on it or has pooed on it or or they've just got stuff on their hands and they've wiped it on the material. As soon as that dried cholera um, mess touches the water, say by washing they, but those vibrios become viable again and suddenly they're in your house. It's a little bit like um, with the plague. One of the things that they, they realise or we realise now with the plague is that so much of the, um, of the disease itself was actually carried in material from one place to another. The, um, the fleas that were, um, so I think they were lice actually, were 
um, loved nesting, a bit like moths, had a nice plague of moths in our house. And they love going between those little thin layers of material. And again, you bring them into your house and wham, the pathogen is in your house. And uh, so, yeah, the speed of trade was really, really important for spreading the disease very, very quickly from where it had erupted to somewhere where we'll bring it there and it will erupt even more. Here is your perfect, perfect environment for this really nasty disease to do its absolute worst. Yeah, I mean, there are so many diseases that are, are sort of similar. It's always the nasty ones as well. Uh, Yersinia pestis was the classic one, you know, bubonic plague, as you mentioned. There's a very famous yeah. case of a village called Ian where That's a tailor it. received cloth uh, from London and, uh, and that transmitted it. Uh, and also um, Bacillus anthraxis, for example, anthrax can just go to sleep. Um, which is why there's such a problem sort of digging up buildings in in big wool towns because that's a very wool-associated disease. Yeah, um, yeah. We didn't actually mention how many people died in these epidemics throughout the Victorian period. Can you give us a, a, sort of a size, size of the scale of things? I mean, we don't know. Hundreds of thousands. I mean, I was looking at... Um, some stats the other day and we think that in the in the very first outbreak it was anything from 32,000 to 50,000 in I would imagine that's probably England or Wales but it could be Britain you know as a whole but the fact is we don't know and and, and the other thing as well is don't don't forget that registration didn't happen until um 1837 and and even then it wasn't um, necessary for doctors to certify your cause of death and so 1831, 1832, who knows? The one thing that we do know is how quickly the graveyards filled up. And we also know how many cholera graveyards had to be built all over the country to accommodate the dead. I mean, you've only got to go into a parish graveyard in London, in some places, Lambeth, for example, where I've done an enormous amount of work. I mean, the level of the graveyard has, has risen, you know, in a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts six, seven, eight feet to accommodate the dead. And that's on top of all the plague dead in, in the centre of London as well, of course. So, I mean, it's absolutely hundreds of thousands. Um, perhaps a comparison you could make is in Haiti since 2010. Um, I mean, and this is with medical intervention. Ten, at least 10,000 people have died just in the last 12 years. And that's with being able to help people and hydrate them more rapidly. So we, we are looking at hundreds of thousands and, and around the world, probably millions. We talked about not understanding this stuff. Before we talk about how they did become to understand it, Kit, fire away, because we need to talk about miasma theory, don't we? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we do. So, so the, the prevailing theory at the time was, I mean, germ theory wasn't there in, at that period of time. We hadn't come up with that. We didn't know how diseases were spread. The big idea was miasma, which is this yeah. bad smell, this bad air. Talk us through it. You know, what, what did people think about cholera? Where did they think it came from? Yeah, and it's actually, when you think about it, it's not so stupid. But yeah, miasma, it's, it's that all bad things come from bad smells. That's a sort of a, a bit of a quote from Edwin Chadwick, I think. But um, yeah, they, they thought that um, if somewhere ponged, then you're going to get ill. And if you think about it, yeah, it's, it's, of course, it's going to hold up the progress of understanding how a disease works. But actually, the good thing where cholera is concerned is that if a place smells, it's because it's dirty. And so if you clean that place, you're, and, and, you, and you also, a lot of people did understand that there was something to do with the drinking water. Um, that well, if you clean the place, then actually you notice that um, that people become healthier. So, although it certainly obstructed the belief that disease, not just cholera, 
excuse me, was caused by microorganisms, by germs, um, there was a benefit in the miasma theory in understanding that cleanliness was important. But yeah, I mean, you've, you've got something else connected in there as well with the miasma theory, and it's about people's attitude towards the poor, because the stinkiest areas, especially in London and port cities, are where the poor lived. And a prevailing theory was that, you know, the poor weren't worth helping. They weren't worth, if they couldn't help themselves, well, why, why should I help you? You know, you, you need to help yourself and you need to clean up your own mess. And and the cost, the cost of it, why have we got to spend all this money on the poor? Why can't they do something about it themselves? It's a really different attitude, a different way of thinking about society to what we have today. Although not in all cases, which is also quite interesting. It does depend where you live and it depends also who you're reading about you know, their, their own history of, of, the, of, the, of the whole Victorian era, if you like. There are some places in the country, Bristol, for example, where an awful lot was done to help to clean the environment of the poor. And again, understanding that miasma was the cause of disease but there was also in Bristol it's something I talk about in cholera the Victorian plague about how ahead they were from really the early 1840s of understanding that it wasn't just about miasma there was something else going on as well also because they'd formed their own microscopic society there and so they were terribly terribly interested in in thinking is this caused by something else Um, so (coughs) excuse me yeah you can look at it again in in two different ways. But miasma was, um, yeah, I, th- I think on the whole, definitely obstructed and held back the advancement in understanding with cholera that it was waterborne. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. No, I mean, it, it's a fascinating subject. I can't imagine a government today not caring about the poor. That what an outrage that would be. I'm sure people yeah. would be up in arms. Um, but uh, it wasn't just the poor that died, obviously. I mean, we have some famous victims of the cholera as well, such as Tchaikovsky. Um, so, Who knew? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's sort of wider, wider things as well. Um, but I think Alex sort of alluded to this. We probably should get on to how cholera was discovered. So how was it discovered and, and, and what happened next, I guess? Um, well, as I kind of just alluded to then, there were a lot of people who had a, and I had an idea that it was caused by a microorganism. William Budd in Bristol, for one, and his chums down there and their little um, society, um, and which you know then developed into looking at things under the microscope. I mean, really interesting, interesting bunch of enlightened people. Of course, it's always attributed to John Snow. And I'm a member of the John Snow Society, and I love John Snow, and I love spending time in Soho, stroking the water pump that they've put back and thankfully now since the redevelopment of Broadwick Street it's back where it once was whereas before it was a little bit further away <coughs> excuse me but um the, the the difficulty with Jon Snow is that his story has been rather mythologized but it does help the myth of Jon Snow does help to explain to people especially to school children what happened in the Victorian era and the reason why his story is being mythologized is because his story was originally incorporated in um, a textbook in a school book in America in 1902 by a chap called William T Sedgwick 
And the reason why the Americans loved Jon Snow so much was because he absolutely epitomised the American dream. He was a poor boy made good. But actually, he wasn't that poor. His family wasn't that poor. I would say that probably, if you want to define it, they were sort of lower middle class. His family actually ended up doing quite well. But because of their poorer origins, or let's say their lack of capital when he was a child I think that's the only way you can put it really because I think his father then inherited land and money later on in their lives he wasn't able to have a traditional education Jon Snow and he certainly wasn't able to go to university Um, but it was because of this and because he was a highly intelligent visionary person that he he started to understand and this is the real really important thing about Jon Snow is that he observed people's behavior And he was fortunate to have been the um, apprentice um, of um, another doctor in Yorkshire because he came from Yorkshire, Jon Snow. And um, he was um, he was sent out to help the miners in a place called Killingworth in in Yorkshire. And he observed their behaviour and started to realise because in 1831 to 32, cholera epidemic cholera hit Killingworth and Yorkshire and he started to realise Jon Snow by watching what they were doing every day and really their hygiene he was he um I think today you'd probably say he had OCD because he had strange dietary habits as well um but he noticed that they weren't washing their hands their personal hygiene he felt very strongly was connected to why they were catching cholera of course he was right Um, he also realized that they didn't have proper water to drink down the mines he brought these ideas down to London started working in London and again applied these very interesting and again it's out of the box thinking what I was talking about in the last podcast applying this out of the box um thinking to what was going on in Lambeth, because the situation in Lambeth in 48-49 was apocalyptic. The thousands of people who died and the fact that they they had to take their running water from the river. I mean, you know, there's this thing of, oh, well, you know, you get your water from a water pump. Well, you know, if you're lucky, they were drinking water direct from buckets from the river. And again, he was watching them do this and realising that this was probably why they were falling ill. The difficulty for him with for Jon Snow to explain this to people was the very nature of the whole class system during this period, that he was this person from Yorkshire, probably taught, you know, lovely Yorkshire accent, but we don't talk like that. And you haven't been to university. Not only that, he didn't go to Edinburgh University. And a lot of the people who were practising medicine, surgery in London, they were part of a clique. They all knew each other. They all shared each other's ideas. And um, yeah, they were part of this whole clique and he was not allowed into that clique having said that his ideas he he wrote prolifically and his on the mode of the communication of cholera was disseminated quite widely that his that's his famous famous paper but the the whole idea of him knocking on doors in soho was in fact it was his assistant who did who did that whitehead and his you know, devising a map. Well, he didn't devise the map. He adapted a map that had been drawn up by an engineer called Cooper. Um, but his his brilliance actually with the famous cholera map that you see everywhere is that he drew a line showing the walk, walking distances to the pump in Broadwick Street. And that was his stroke of brilliance because he was able then to show in talks a really easy way to understand um, how the pump in Broadwick Street or Broad Street, as it was known then, how the um, tainted water had affected people within that immediate vicinity and also then debunk the miasma theory. Because if miasma, if it were miasma that were at work, then other people in that vicinity would also have been affected. But not everybody was. The sad thing about Jon Snow Um, was that he died at the beginning of 1858. His ideas had started to become disseminated, but his ideas were then forgotten as his and were picked up by other people. And the thing which really kick-started any sort of change was the great stink in the summer of 1858. 
and because the the smell of disease, the smell of putrefaction was immediately obvious to members of parliament and particularly to Benjamin Disraeli and they realized that something needed to happen but but poor old John Snow yeah great visionary but not good on the PR front um and yeah it the, the thing that kind of won it over for cholera being a waterborne disease was statistical analysis and he wasn't very good at that he was very good at saying well do you know what I think this is what it is and of course he was right but you know an instinct especially in scientific circles isn't enough you've got to be able to back up your theory with proper proper evidence and and he didn't do that I think we should start talking about COVID and correlations um, with cholera because they're, they're undoubtedly there. So, yeah, has cholera shaped our understanding of of COVID? Um, is there a correlation there for us to look at? Amazingly, yes, there is. Yeah. <laughs> I I think that um, epidemic disease. The, the way that cholera was dealt with in the Victorian era, and again, you know, I, I, I go chronologically in my book through all the different things that happened, mm. was that um, the, the door was not closed until the horse had well and truly bolted. And I think that um, also proper systems were not set up during the Victorian period, maybe because they, mainly because they didn't want trade to stop not that dissimilar to what happened with covid oh well you know we'll keep the airports open because well you know it's tourism we want people mm. to to still be moving around do we find uh, the similar restrictions for cholera uh, no not for not for the movement of people but they did try to restrict um ships and there were quarantine areas set up set up at various different places and at various different times but it was also very easy to break those restrictions. And there was one famous incident in Southampton where that happened. And, you know, the ship was in quarantine, but the people, <laughs> a cheer there from Kit. Um, uh, but people were was... spreading plagues. Yeah, Lake exactly. It's <laughs> your hometown, dude. <laughs> the, the ship was in dock, quarantine, but the people were able to get on and off. And so then brought cholera into the city. And um, so, you know, it's I think that the, the big correlation is that political and economic factors always win through above protecting people's health. Unfortunately, it's only again when you see thousands of people dying and you think, oh, maybe we should do something about this. Um, one of the most fantastic things that I've discovered recently and an absolutely strong correlation and it's because of the work that's been going on uh, currently with with cholera um actually before I talk about that I should also say that the great thing about the pandemic because all ghastly things do have a silver lining um is that it has speeded up research and and looking at bacteria and viruses in a completely different way and um you know, all of our ideas, you know, are, are wrong, really. Um, well, or at least they're not quite right. Um, but, um, yeah, my hero, the person who I would invite to my dream dinner party um, is Professor Rita Colwell, who um, has overcome a pretty um, toxic environment in the um, in the workplace, in um, laboratories in the United States. I mean, she's nearly 90 now. And um, she's very much encountered this, oh, well, you're a woman, you don't know what you're talking about. And so her amazing, visionary, out-of-the-box way of looking at things has just been pushed to one side. Um, but suddenly, well, not suddenly, but thank heavens, her work is finally being recognised and understood. And one of the things that she was asked to do during the cholera out, um, during the cholera outbreak, during the COVID outbreak, was realising that one of the things with um, epidemic disease um, that is really, really useful is mapping and being able to see because because um, pathogens are 
organisms which live a lifestyle, if you like. There's going to be a pattern with what they do. And so mapping is really, really useful to be able to predict where something is about to break out. And she adapted their um, cholera maps, um, which showed through the sewage system where cholera was about to break out. So I said earlier, you can detect vibrios in people's poo. You know that you've got cholera, you've got pathogenic epidemic cholera in your neighbourhood by looking at people's poo because the vibrios that you have excreted is in the wastewater. Now, a bit of an alert here if you're eating a sandwich. Maybe I should have said that before, but we can also do that with covid the COVID virus is in your poo. It's in the wastewater. And what they amazingly were able to do in the United States, they adapted the cholera tracking maps to COVID and they were able to predict where cholera was about to erupt in different states in, in America. Um, so that's one fantastic thing that we've learned from cholera that has been able to be adapted to COVID. But the, the work that Professor Colwell has been doing on um, horizontal genetic transfer and with understanding that the natural environment, the host environment for pathogens is not humans. It's the natural environment. It's the sea. It's rivers, estuarine environments. It's probably the soil, the air, perhaps. Water is, you know, a big Thing. And adapting the work that she's done with cholera to what we can find out about COVID. And the other amazing thing, being a woman, is that she talks to people. She doesn't just keep her work in her lab. Throughout her career, she's gone and worked with other women in other departments and said, so what are you working on? Oh, gosh, that sounds ever so similar to what I've been working on. I wonder if there's a relationship. Um, and so really, you know, being able to use the experience of, yeah, cholera in the past, the work that she had done um, in oceanography at one part of her career with adapting how um, cholera is working and then also how COVID is working and, of course, other emerging pathogens as well. And with climate change. One thing we do want to go back to is, is of course, cholera, um, because how it is, as you mentioned, it's still ongoing in, in many countries, particularly you know the Indian subcontinent. Has cholera broken out recently, and and how has our current scientific understanding changed, you know, based on the epidemiological work that we're, we're doing at the moment? Did the Victorians yeah. get it right, or are they slightly wrong? Yeah, um, yes, no. I mean, Victorians, I think they did get it right in that we know it's in the water. And I think that the one thing that I feel the Victorians really got right, and Jon Snow, because I need to wave the flag for him, really, I mustn't be unkind, um, is observation. Observing what people are doing, their daily life is really, really important. Um, so, yeah, and cholera is active and, and out there. I mean, Yemen, for example, Mexico, Haiti is still a problem. Bangladesh, as soon as the monsoons come and it floods and the flooding, what happens is, of course, that that estuarine, coastal, warm water, full of cholera and its lovely little copepods all come into the um, mix with sewage. And, and as I said earlier, you know, sewage also, we think, probably does help horizontal genetic transfer with um, microorganisms, with bacteria and viruses. Um, so, yeah, it brings it brings that whole marine environment to human beings. So. Cholera is an ongoing problem. The only way that you can stop it because it's a natural organism is by ensuring that you have clean drinking water, ensuring that you wash your food and ensuring that you wash your hands with soap and water. That breaks the cycle. Those three things break the cycle. And also be careful what you eat from the marine environment for example i would not eat raw prawns because and shrimp because cholera is associated with shrimp in the environment so boil them then you know the problem goes away um, so it's trying to break that link and also to ensure that when natural disasters occur 
where we know that there is a, a climate issue of ensuring, as in Haiti, for example, that those people who were affected um, are instantly helped and are given clean water and are told, make sure you wash your hands after you've been to the loo, wash your hands. Don't not wash your food. Make sure you wash your hands before you eat. It's really, really important. Um, so it's, yeah, it's it's trying to break that link. But um, one of the things that Rita Colwell, Professor Rita Colwell says is that we can't eradicate cholera because it's there. Um, but what we can do is to stop it becoming pathogenic in in you know emerging countries but i mean it could just as easily still break out here if we had some major flooding event um i think i've missed something else that you you asked me there there was and there was another aspect to there to that question as well it, it's a it's about the the current scientific understanding and the epidemiology yeah so um yeah the other the other thing that i was going to say is that it, it is this anticipation of the problem because we can't eradicate cholera and probably this goes for you know the common cold as well because it's a part of the world the environment is really really important the minute you disrupt your environment you are creating an opportunity for pathogens to to cause disease so it's a question of one respecting the environment and to try to limit climate change um, because it is a one-way street and the other thing is where that isn't possible because it's already started or it's already happening in certain areas to try to, again, anticipate. For example, another thing that um, Professor Corwell has been involved with in Bangladesh and the Indian subcontinent is that with um, a project with NASA, they're now able to look at satellite imaging. They've been doing this for some years now so they can anticipate the warming of the coastal regions. So they know a, a good time before the rains come that cholera is going to happen and so and so they're then able to alert people to that fact and and also um in in areas which are vulnerable knowing that there's probably not a massive amount you can do but showing people for example how they can filter their water one of the things that um professor colwell's been involved with in in bangladesh um is um a project where women are shown with their sari cloth. I think they fold it four times. They get, they've actually, they've given them now special sari cloth and they filter their drinking water through the layers of sari cloth. And because sari cloth is very finely woven, it traps the, um, the Vibrio cholerae, but it also traps the copepods. It traps the microorganisms which are going to harm them in the cloth. And then they're able to drink the water. It's not pure water, but it hasn't got the things in it that are going to kill them. And this has been extraordinarily successful in areas where all the women have sari cloth, but they're never, ever going to be able to eradicate cholera because it's there, it's in, it's in their ponds, it's in their rivers, it's, it's, it's everywhere. So it's, again, it's a question of managing it and then respecting the environment. Hugely, hugely important. Spoken about the fact that, you know, obviously there is a climate change function, the fact that cholera is essentially endemic now, so is COVID, that's just the situation we're in. We've always been in that situation. I mean, you know, we, we, we live, the world is not just things that you can see, it's the micro world as well. So this isn't actually a new thing. Sorry, carry oh, on. Oh, sure. What I meant is, I mean, COVID, for example, is, is novel. COVID, COVID-19, yeah. the, the particular, sub, because obviously viral transmission, viral alteration of its DNA is slightly different because basically they're, for those who don't know, circles and they can basically exchange bits to each other and create new things. Exactly so, that. Unfortunately, if we get a situation where you know, one thing combines with another, we get a nasty thing. Um, yeah. But, um, I mean... We've, there are so many parallels we've sort of covered and things like that and we've spoken about the correlations is there anything that the study of cholera and its prevention can help us in terms of tackling covid or you know where where, where will the future take us are we going to yeah. have another type of cholera as well is that something we could yeah see? i think we i think we will i mean i i think when i mean obviously i go out and do quite a lot of talks about this and and um, yeah, I mean, all, all of the work that I do on social and, and medical history and my work on nonconformity as well. But the, the one thing that I always say at the end of my talks is 
just wash your hands with soap, soap and water. I mean, it's all very well using sanitizing gel, but really, if you want to destroy something that's on your hands, you need to use soap and water. You need to have good levels of of sanitation in your home. And I don't mean by that squirting chemicals everywhere. Detergent is a really good way to get rid of germs. Um, I, I mentioned a little bit earlier, so I'm trying to get back to the, the history aspect of it as well, about William Budd in Bristol. And one of the things that he did, um, this was leading up to the 1866 outbreak, was that as soon as they'd started to realise that cholera was breaking out in other places, they'd already, he already knew that um, that cholera was waterborne. And it's a real pity, actually, that William Budd is not sort of the hero that John Snow is, because William Budd was on it quite a bit before John Snow, and again, through observation. But he put together, before um, the 1866 outbreak, or when it was just starting, with Bristol being a port as well, and it was densely populated, they'd already started providing um, running water for people, clean running water. But he also understood that the general cleanliness of people's houses um, needed to, to be better. And prior to the outbreak in 1866, he got together a band of women, it was 28 women, and they went out to households across mainly um, the port of Bristol just to clean people's houses. And then when people died, they took all of, I mean, I don't know how this affected, I was thinking about this earlier this week I wonder how this affected people if they took away all of their bedding because then they wouldn't have had any bedding but what they did was they took away the bedding of people who had died of cholera or had been suffering from cholera um, and burnt it because one of the ways that cholera was really heavily um, uh, transmitted through um, um, rural environments and and, um, urban environments as well was women washing out the, the bedding that had vomit and feces on it, which had dried Vibrios on. And then the minute you put them in water, they then become viable again. And so lots of washerwomen died of cholera because they then wouldn't wash their hands in clean water and they go off and prepare the food or they put their fingers in their mouth or whatever, and then they had cholera as well. So what Bud did in Bristol was he had this system of sending women out cleaning people's houses and and also making people really aware you know this disease is out there be careful you don't have to catch it if you're careful you won't I think the difference between cholera and COVID there though is that well you can kind of track where cholera is you know it's going to be in your water it's probably going to be on your food you know it's on your hands but the problem with COVID is it's in the air but you can't see it in the air. You can't isolate it in the air. You can't say, well, you know, I'm only going to breathe, excuse me, clean air today. But I mean, of course, one of the things that the government did say during the whole um, pandemic period was, well, go outside, breathe fresh, clean air, which has a parallel, I think, to cholera. Um, Let's just wrap it up with the the final sort of tie-in to history and things like that, because we've spoken about how it was discovered but how was cholera finally defeated? I mean, you mentioned the Great Stink, and that encouraged the Victorians to build the, the sewage system, Joseph Bazalgette, um, yeah. and, and getting rid of, of, of you know, and improving sanitation. Is that yeah. what really sort of was the nail in the coffin? Certainly, yeah, because the fact is it's breaking the cycle. And if you've, if you've got clean water and also, um, as I say, encouraging people to be cleaner, then... It stops people eating, drinking cholera and stops the cycle. Um, I mean, cholera did continue to break out in other places. The last um, breakout that we had in this country was 1866. There was another small outbreak in the 1890s. But the fact is that if you're drinking clean water, washing your food in clean water, obviously the same clean water, and that you're being careful that when you go to the loo, you wash your hands before you prepare food, you wash your hands, then it's unlikely that you're going to catch it. The other thing as well is that... um, if, pe- if you're healthier and you're better fed and you don't drink so much, then your gut isn't actually a particularly nice place for cholera to be. Cholera prefers, it's believed at the moment, I'll probably next week be proved wrong with the science that's going on. But 
it, it's believed, at least at the moment, that cholera prefers an unhealthy gut. It's easier for it to do its deed in that way because of the acidity, alkalinity, and, and probably it's to do with the flora in the gut as well. And then the interaction between gut flora that happens when you ingest cholera. Um, but yeah, it's breaking that cycle. And that's what, again, what I was saying about the sari cloth in Bangladesh. You know, we can't change the water that they're drinking in Bangladesh unless you, you set up an entirely new water system there. But you can stop them drinking the cholera that's in the water. And so, again, it is breaking that cycle and, and understanding how important drinking clean water is. It's really, really important. Fantastic. Amanda, Thomas, thank you so much. Thank uh, your you. book is Cholera, the Victorian Plague. It's now available. Um, and where can people find you online? Things like that. Yeah, well, I mean, you can find me. Um, I have an author's page on Amazon. Please, please write a review. Please, please, of my book. Obviously, say it's wonderful and you love it. Um, <laughs> but, um, but also, yeah, download this podcast. Tell your friends about it. The last podcast has gone absolutely berserk. So, somebody loves me out there um and yeah please please buy my books and then if you're part of a small organization i will come and talk to you i will come and spread the love of cholera and getting excited <laughs> about history but not spread cholera no no <laughs> well, kind of if you want me to but no absolutely not but just i think it's also because disease has such a massive implication for today and with what we've been through with the pandemic informing ourselves of what happened in history is absolutely the most important thing we can possibly do. So keep reading my books, please. Thank you very much, Amanda. Uh, this has been uh, Kit and Alex saying, always wash your hands. Oh, thank you. When our guests join us to talk about their work in their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack. Or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support. And here's to your next great book. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.